0: Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Rob Foster, the, what we'll say, outgoing Navy Chief Information Officer. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: And thank you for having me, Jason.
0: So this is sort of an exit interview. You're not retiring or leaving the government, but you are moving to a new job. And it's always great to catch up to CIOs who have spent uh, several years in a position and now are moving on. So let's start with the news factor. As I mentioned, you're the outgoing Department of Navy CIO. Talk a little bit about your new job at the National Credit Union Administration and and what went into the decision to leave the Department
1: of Navy. If I could, I'd like to frame it a little bit because there's been some comments about Lieutenant General Farrell and Lieutenant General Bender, Air Force and Army CIO's departure, and then Rob Foster's departure as uh, some kind of a, a trifecta, and I just wanted to clear that up. Those were individual decisions to generals retiring after a very distinguished career, and I'm moving on to another opportunity. So there is a no, no there there, but I did want to put that out there. The other thing is, uh, just like the Army and the Air Force did when their CIOs detached, the Don CIO will be filled by uh, our don principal deputy dr kelly fletcher until a permanent cio is appointed but my decision to depart was uh, an opportunity to go to national credit union administration from the department of the navy working as a dcio but focused on it delivery so i'm a little bit closer to the customer i'll be reporting to the cio mr ed doris and uh, you know i just followed the usa jobs process did uh, applications did some interviews And upon selection, I notified my chain of command that I'd be departing, and uh, I show up there on the 21st of August.
0: Now, I know that you're maybe referring to in the beginning the the fact that the Army and Air Force CIOs decided to leave. Of course, it was clear that they were planning to leave for quite a while. I think there's always a rotation with the military uniform CIOs. Uh, There's less a rotation with a civilian CIO like yourself. So was there anything that went into your decision, meaning was it just time? Was it an opportunity that you just couldn't pass up? Give me a reason because you've only been there, I guess, two and a half years or so, and you seem to be making a lot of progress.
1: Yes, well, it, it definitely was an individual decision, and uh, many CIOs have about a three year time frame. They try and get as much done as they can, and they look for other opportunities. In my case, I just wanted to get back to IT delivery, and I think this is the right opportunity for me.
0: All right, very nice. Now, you mentioned uh, you'll be working uh, closer to the customer. Is That was one of the biggest differences and, and really uh, reasons why you looked at this role. Talk a little bit about the position as well. What are some of the things? Do you have some background in the financial world? Is this going to be a, a pretty big learning curve for you?
1: With every job, there's a learning curve, Jason, but I think IT is universally transferable. So the organization I'm going to, NCUA, has a major undertaking of an enterprise modernization plan. And I'm going to be a key uh, player in helping deliver that capability. So some things in acquisition where I have a history, I will be able to contribute in areas of IT delivery and planning. I'll be able to contribute in operations. I'll be able to contribute. And so I'm very excited about the opportunity to be, again, closer to the customer, uh, delivering product. And I think Their strategic plan and their resources and the energy behind the organization is exactly the right fit for me.
0: It's interesting that this move, a lot of people maybe will scratch their heads a little bit, but you've done several things throughout your career. You've worked at HHS. You've worked, uh, forgive
1: me, VA. Is that correct? No, it was the Department of Homeland Security under U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement.
0: So in many ways, I mean, you've kind of gone from this closer to the customer to more 50,000-foot view back to closer to the customer. So this seems to be just part of the trajectory of your career. And I guess that's what's, as you said, most exciting. Talk a little bit about your role in the Navy a little bit and what you've done over the last two years and, and some of your accomplishments that you're most proud of.
1: When I first got here, I reorganized the team for direct line of sight back to Klinger Cohen, and I thought that was pretty important so that we could have some relationship to what our authorities were. The four or five areas that we focused on, but I'll highlight a couple, all were done by the Don CIO team and the directors that led it. So privacy was one of my strong suits, strategic spectrum was one, cybersecurity, and then risk management framework. And under privacy, which was led by a uh, Mr. Steve Muck, we focused on reducing the social security numbers that are visible to the public, and we're transitioning those to the DOD ID numbers, which are not used in industry. So. That essentially, things like reducing the social security numbers on DOD dog tags, if you will. We've also done a PII breach response, first ever tabletop exercise with the department on uh, how to do PII breaches and the responses thereof. We've taken our historic training, which used to be almost PowerPoint-based, for privacy, and we've done uh, gamification and put that into a mobile application. So that helps the users uh, essentially learn a little bit more. So in privacy was a big area that I wanted to focus on. in strategic spectrum, the director there is uh, Mr. Tom Kidd. A lot of areas, and I, I call strategic spectrum the long game, but things like commercial broadband. So there was a, a challenge to get commercial broadband on the Navy installations, and it took about five years previously, and now it's down to less than one year because the team partnered with uh, energy, the Navy's Energy Installation and Environment, EI&E Group, and essentially did a, a Lean Six Sigma, brought that process down to under one year. And so that streamlined process has now been vetted with other stakeholders, which gets broadband to the installations within, you know, a year as opposed to five years. So that's a big, big play there. On the international spectrum side, we've had some some successes. Uh, the Navy's got a, a 5 gigahertz frequency band that's critical to our weapon systems and that's been uh, discussed in international sectors to uh, be sold off and our team has worked very very hard to express why that's important to the Department of Defense and um, specifically the Department of the Navy so that's been another success in the cybersecurity area i think that's uh, a big deal too uh, we've got uh, David Tillman uh we've worked on risk management framework that's a, a big deal to migrate from the old diacap dod information assurance certification and accreditation process to our risk management framework uh, format, and um, they've created the team uh, risk management framework light. It's essentially a bridge from one process to another. And that's a big deal to help uh, migrate old systems into a new one. I think a while back we talked a little bit about the cybersecurity workforce and training, a lot of energy around that. And the team has worked very, very hard to identify cybersecurity positions, so they've completed that action. Uh, After our initial republishing, Cybersecurity Workforce Management Qualification Instruction, which was a SEC NAV instruction that was signed out. that took a while to get done, but as that was being done, there was parallel efforts, of which the cybersecurity positions have been completed, determination of education and military training, things uh, of commercial certifications, credentialing, those activities. And then now we're working very diligently to put that into a catalog for continuing education opportunities, all to be used to get our employees transferred from what they know to what we know about them when it comes to cybersecurity. And that'll help with career progression and also hiring. So all of those things are areas that we've been working on over the last couple of years, which I think are, are pretty big and successful.
0: All right. A lot to kind of unpack there. Let me back up. The reducing the social security numbers um, so they're not visible anymore and that they're you know focused on the DOD ID numbers. How- how far along are you? Are you 80% there? Are you 70% there? And what's the time frame to, to complete that?
1: We've started with things like looking at what is posted. So, so once it's posted, it's obviously hard to get it off the net. But there was things like when um, military officers used to get promoted, there was social security numbers, and so those have been redacted. We've got a plan to get to it, but I would suggest. In some cases, we find things the farther we dig. So I don't have a deadline or a a percent complete, but we're working on dog tags. We've got a policy out on that to be uh, implemented by uh, October of this year to change the DOD um, ID numbers from the Social Security numbers. We've worked on the paperwork side so that we don't have Social Security numbers associated with individuals being published, and we're still working on whatever else we can can find that might be uh, vulnerable. It's
0: interesting how that has changed so much over the last, you know, five seven years. We think, oh, social security number. We always knew it was a private thing. You have to keep it close. But as you kind of dig out of that, as you said, you're finding more and more work. Then, uh, and, and this that goes to the broader cyber kind of recognition of of the importance of cybersecurity and, and keeping things private. Talk a little bit about the move from the old. You said the old Die Cap to the risk management framework. Is the Navy, the Department of the Navy, starting to look at systems and look at data in a different way, you know, kind of what's the risk to us if something should happen?
1: Moving from one framework to the other doesn't solve cybersecurity. It just gives you a different point of reference to look at it. My analogy is that the DiCap process was normally done right before production of a system, and then the risk management framework has six uh, steps that are done throughout the development process. So you're getting an earlier indication of the cybersecurity posture of that prior to production. So I think that's important to note. The other thing about that migration I think is when you look at uh, privacy um, there's a user impact issue. So you've got you've got spear phishing which happens, you've got certain things that that could exploit someone's identity and then that could be used to harvest their credentials potentially and then maybe potentially move laterally in a network. So if you can close off, you've got the defense and depth side, which is more of a, a fence and moat scenario, but then you've still got the user impact. And I think uh, reducing the Social Security numbers, I think, uh, will, will help us. And both a privacy breach and, in many cases, privacy be- breaches are a key indicator of a cybersecurity breach.
0: And from the, the move to the risk management framework, what's the latest with that? Is, is that, again, you said there was kind of this interim kind of risk management framework light or DieCap light going on. What needs to get done to move to the full RMF?
1: A couple of things. I think, one, we have to train some people. Two, I think we have to modify a potential contracts, which might be directive in what you have to do, i.e. a contract that specifically and explicitly says you'll use DiaCap, so that needs to be modified. I believe that the... Um, The packages, if you will, the old authority to operate, were normally a three-year process where you would get an authority to operate, and then you would go through it, wait three years or or a little bit before that, and start doing a new package. The risk management framework allows you, if it's done properly, to take the credit that you've done in DiACAP, marry it over to the risk management framework, get credit from where you're at, and then that allows you to potentially added a few layers of security through risk management framework, and then from there, you would have a continuous monitoring methodology, so it wouldn't be a three-year periodicity. It would be continuous, and then the outcome of that could lead you to an ongoing authorization, which should reduce workload, increase speed, visibility of threat, and closing and, and mitigating of those threats. All which would lead to a, a better secure system.
0: And I know we may talk about some future priorities or some things that still need to get done later in the program. That's probably part of that is, is finishing off that move the die cap. We have to take a break. My guest is Rob Foster, the outgoing Department of Navy Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on FederalNewsRadio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on FederalNewsRadio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Rob Foster, the outgoing Department of Navy Chief Information Officer. Let me jump over to the other interesting thing that you mentioned was uh, the spectrum changes, the moving from almost five years to get high speed or, or, as you said, broadband to Navy installations down to less than a year. First of all, why did it take five years? And, and obviously, good news, you're getting it down to, to less than one year. I imagine your goal is to get it down to, to a month or, or six months or something much, much shorter as well.
1: If you look at Navy installations, there's a host-tenant arrangement, so there's a lot of host organizations and there's tenants. So the first thing is is identifying a single point of contact for broadband or spectrum on an installation. I think that's critical, which has been accomplished. So now you have one single person that's you know kind of the, the, the focal point. The other thing was it actually used to go through a lease process. And so a lease process had a request for bids, it went through, you know, that process of essentially an acquisition style. Now that lease has been converted to the word easement. And again, working with energy installations and environment, we had real estate experts in the room, we had uh, spectrum people in the room, we had base folks that represented the installations in the room. All of those folks worked through it and essentially took the current process or the historical process And looked at where value was added and and how we could compress that. And when you went from a a lease to an easement, it – dramatically shrunk the timeline to include who to talk to, what's required to move it forward, and then the outcome being you know, a tower for broadband on an installation much more rapidly.
0: Do you guys have a goal of getting that down even less than a year to getting it down to, again, six months or a month or whatever, however long?
1: I think that the first thing is with anything, you want a baseline. So we had a baseline over many years of up to five years. I'm not saying every one of them was five years, but this has just been implemented about eight months ago. So we want to see this flesh out. And then there are people that are monitoring that. And then from that point, Jason, they'll they'll see where they can tweak it even better.
0: All right. Very good. And it's, a, it's obviously good news that any time you can reduce the time it takes. I mean, five years just seemed, as you said, even if it's just on the high end of the, of the pendulum, it's an incredible amount of time. Last kind of accomplishment I want to just delve into a little deeper is the workforce issue. We did talk about this I think June of 2016. So it's been a year since you and I have caught up. You guys were just put out the memo and then had just gotten started. So a lot of progress there. Talk a little bit about: Are you seeing a difference already in terms of the training and how sailors and seamen are, are being qualified, if you will, with certificates to work in the cyber world?
1: And this is one of those areas where there's a lot of energy around cybersecurity. And uh, you you don't want to just paint somebody with a brush and call them a cybersecurity expert, but on the other end of the spectrum, you also don't want to discount the training that they've had, both in the military, and through other areas, that would allow them to possibly leapfrog some some rudimentary training, and and one of the things that money and time is a challenge, right? You can't send your people to training all the time because they actually have a day job, but then you need them to be trained and you need to know who they are so that they can have an opportunity to move into a a, a career and in, quite frankly, an area that's a growth industry. And I don't think we can hire fast enough. I don't think we can retain long enough. And so the best opportunity is to find out who's in our force, get credit for what they've done, manage that, that career, and then give them upward mobility opportunities based on, again, commercial certifications, education and training they've already had, and some credentialing. So that's the end state that we're trying to achieve.
0: Over the last year, how much progress has been made? You mentioned as, as in the, earlier on in the discussion, you mentioned some, some changes.
1: The identification of the positions have been completed, so we, we know what and where. We are mapping their education uh, from military training into that. We're looking at commercial certifications and credentials to be put in that's been completed. So it's really more of a roadmap. I don't have a percent complete for staff that have been transitioned into it. We're building that framework to have it fall into.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And obviously there's so many people who will go through it too. You can't say, well, we want to do this for 90% of uh, you know the, the civilians and uniformed or do it for 80%. It's, it's kind of probably a lot of, hey, you are going through training. What have you already learned? How does that apply to cybersecurity and then you can go from there and have a better understanding of what what people know and and what they don't know or what they need to know I imagine that's part of it as well it's kind of that ongoing process
1: and I would also suggest that um, unlike kinetic activities with weapon systems Every keyboard has the potential of detonating some level of a payload, and so therefore everybody that logs onto to a system has to be cyber alert, let's put it that way. So this isn't the basic training of a cybersecurity user, which is everybody that logs on a network. This is a higher level order where they would essentially go down a pro- professional path, if you will.
0: Rob, let me jump over to some bigger priorities that maybe you didn't bring into some of your accomplishments, but stuff that I think people are paying attention to in the in the military world. One of them is uh, obviously the joint information environment, the JRSS, Joint Regional Security Stacks initiatives, both big priorities that, that have been ongoing for several years. Just give us an update where the Navy is in those two worlds.
1: The JRSS, if you will, Joint Regional Security Stack, uh, version 2.0 is – when NMCI will be essentially, our our major network will be the on-ramp to uh, JRSS 2.0. We put a lot of investment into uh, Navy Marine Corps Internet um, some time ago, and that investment has got us significant defense in depth. So as the JRSS goes from 1.0 to 1.5 to 2.0 in their defense in depth, we would migrate from where we are in the navy to to behind the jrss so that's the on-ramp timing is you know sometime you know maybe later half of fy18 is when it looks like it might be scheduled at this point and we're still working with the architects and engineers on uh, how to do that and and, uh, and set to go so
0: and obviously the gie is not a not a system or a network it's a it's an umbrella term so jrss falls under gie So just to clarify that and make sure nobody's confused when when, I asked you the two two acronyms at once and you mentioned NMCI which is always interesting that's obviously been transitioned over to uh, the new NGEN contract as well any update there
1: or in terms of since it's related my mistake they are synonymous in my mind I was in uniform with NMCI now it's NGEN and then it's NGEN Recompete but it's the same delivery model same platform and, uh, no, there's there's not much of an update other than uh, the recompete is, is scheduled, and I, I don't have an actual release time of when that's going to be taking place.
0: Right. I know that there's always acquisition strategies and, and, and sensitivities when you talk about recompete, so we don't want to go through any of that. One of the other uh, big issues is the cloud services, cloud infrastructure. That was something we also talked about, I guess, um, late last year. One of the things you mm-hmm. did, one major change to that process was letting the Navy and the Marine Corps approve their own cloud business cases. So give us just an update of cloud more generally within the Department of Navy's implementation of cloud services.
1: In 18, we're looking at, you know, increasing the number of viable cloud options. So that's going to be happening. They have to be approved by DoD, of course. Defense Information Systems Agency, so DISA, uh, the MilCloud 2.0 is going to hit, which will also be another key enabler to cloud. But Navy... POEIS and the OPNAV organizations are working to produce cloud governance, management models, standardized cloud contracting requirements, things like that, and engineering standards, so that we can push that and, and accelerate uh, the adoption of cloud technology. So, so that's being played in uh, as well. And, and then that kind of helps with the larger platform we talked about previously, which is the NGEN Recompete. All of those things form together, as well as JIE, the umbrella. So everything's in play, but I don't have specifics on times and dates.
0: Certain things that the Navy is doing today, you're taking advantage of the cloud, whether it's a DISA deck or a DISA cloud or or the mill cloud 1.0 or the commercial cloud. You guys have already started to move in that direction. This is
1: you're not waiting for it per se, right? No, no, absolutely not. There's definitely movement. What I'm suggesting is as the technology uh, becomes more enhanced and I think uh, things become more connected, both from a contract perspective, a cybersecurity perspective, an operational perspective and tools, techniques and governance that's when you're going to see some massive uh, massive acceleration into the cloud.
0: All right, so something to pay attention to, something to watch. I know the Milk Cloud 2.0 has been a, a something of uh, the federal tech community has watched very closely, so more are coming there. We have to take a break. My guest is Rob Foster, the outgoing Department of Navy Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Rob Foster, the outgoing Department of Navy Chief Information Officer. I know the Department of Navy released a mobile app locker just this past March. Talk a little bit about what that is and how that effort's going.
1: So that's been a great success. So the the Navy app locker was developed and is managed by uh, PEOEIS, the Program Management 240. It's a mobility team there. And... um, it essentially provides the same experience you'd find with both Apple and Google and the app stores. It's simple, it's a great layout, it's clean. We have 26 or so applications currently in there. 19 were developed by this organization, PMW Seven came from uh, other Navy parts of the organization. But the key ingredient here is it's in one location, it's got the same kind of form factors you will have if you are looking at Google and app. I've used it to put my uh, privacy application there, so so it's all in one place. And and I, I will tell you, it's pretty interesting to watch young sailors come in with ideas and then turn them into a product that they actually can see downloaded on their phone. And I think that's where we're going to start getting some bang for our buck as well. So anyone can submit a mobile app idea. And if anybody is interested and they want to look at it, it's uh, HTTPS. That's www.applocker.navy.mil, and you can see the form factor and, and see what it looks like. But, but we're pushing hard on mobility. We're pushing hard on having sailors contribute to that mobility through their ideas and then turning those ideas into mobile apps because that's where everything's headed.
0: Now, we'll definitely link to that website on our uh, com as well to make it easy for people to, to find. One Wonderful. question comes to mind rob is the fact that if i'm sailor young sailor or old sailor and deciding to do an app are there standards are are there rules that i have to follow or how are those apps checked to make sure that hey if i download them i'm not going to get malware even by accident on my device
1: P-O-E-I-S, uh, the, again, PMW-240, does have a process, standard development kit, I believe that they, they allow people to operate in. Nothing goes into production without going through their, their testing, similar to the Apple and the Google. Obviously, you're not going to have an app store just let somebody go directly into production. So uh, that is a, a methodology they use, and I would I would suggest, again, there's a point of contact we can reach out to, and they can follow how to get in there.
0: All right, interesting. So you're going to leave your the next Navy CIO, uh, whoever that may be, a, a list of, of other priorities, things to do? What would that list include?
1: The first thing i do is converse with the new leadership, which would be the secretary and the undersecretary, as to what their priorities are. I will tell you that coming from Department of Defense, you're talking about Lethality, Uh, you're talking about modernization and you're talking about readiness. And so, how do we, from a technology perspective, help employ those three areas? One of them would be, I think, mobility is a big play. I think cloud technology can lead you to a little bit lower cost in some areas, so there's a big, big push there, I would assume. I would also say that, you know, cybersecurity is. Uh, a a major focal point um, because we have to be faster, we have to be diligent, and we have to be focused because that's an adversary's area of of opportunity that we don't want to have exploited. So cybersecurity, I think mobility, I think uh, cloud. I I don't want to use the word commodity IT, but I think there's an opportunity to move uh, more business systems to that and then harvest some of those savings into more weapon systems and I think that might be some of the priorities but again I would I would be just guessing because I haven't specifically spoken to the the new secretary on those.
0: The other advice you'd have for the next Navy CIO I mean you came in you spent a whole career in the Navy so you had some background there but at the same time coming in as a civilian from a technology side is I think much different than just being a a career seaman or sailor.
1: You're right Jason and, and again I, I retired in in 06 so uh, you know Ten years later, that the Navy's a different place. So the first thing is to you know, understand the mission of the Department of the Navy. That's that's critical. I think the other key ingredient would be to learn the processes. Um, and I'm not suggesting you have to, you know, focus specifically on process, but you have to know how it works. And then I would also say get to know all the stakeholders, both in the Department of the Navy and the services and the Department of Defense and maybe other stakeholders outside that sphere of influence, and then take manage risk uh, and move out. So those are kind of the four, I guess, top areas I'd focus on.
0: And the other piece of this I think that's connected to this discussion is as the Navy continues down the path, and and you talked about cloud and you talked about mobility and cybersecurity, are there specific technologies, are there specific, you know, emerging areas, whether it's artificial intelligence or machine learning, I hear about that. I hear a lot about microservices, blockchain is starting to get some play in the federal market. Are there certain technologies, you would say these will be important to the Navy down the line, you know, beyond, you know, some of the things we've talked about at a broad level, cyber and cloud.
1: You pretty much hit all of them. So absolutely artificial intelligence is important. I think uh, data science, data analytics at a higher level, if you will, is is critical. And I think that's important to make faster decisions and, and probably better decisions. I think when uh, we're working you know in the, in the infancy but it's being worked and that's additive manufacturing things like that all of those have fallbacks to is the data accurate is it timely? How do you verify it? Which leads you to your point about blockchain. So everything kind of fits together, Jason. And, and I would just suggest that uh, you know we're, we're working hard on autonomous uh, systems. We're working hard on advanced learning techniques and capabilities. All of those fit into the mosaic, and and you can't have one without verifying the other. So. You know, there is some blocking and tackling that has to take place to get to data analytics. There is some blocking and tackling that has to take place with uh, additive manufacturing. One, one is, is the data accurate? Well, how do you determine that the data is accurate. That may be in the cybersecurity, it might be in the blockchain, those kind of things. So it's all being put together to, to lead to a more rapid decision making process and a more lethal force.
0: I know, again, you're not retiring from the federal service, so you'll still be around. I'm sure somebody can call you up if the next you know, Navy CIO has any questions, but do you feel like you're leaving the Navy in a much better place than when you got there? And to discuss a little bit about your feelings about leaving the Navy. I mean, you retired once from the Navy, but there's got to be some emotional here moving out as a civilian as well
1: well absolutely this this as I said when I was hired is the apex of my career having this opportunity has both been a distinct honor and a pleasure and uh, it is it is one of those things it's a struggle to make decisions but uh, it's things that we have to do and weigh all the different uh, pluses and minuses it's not uh, without a heavy heart that I depart, but I'm doing it so that I can get back to technology delivery closer to the customer. I think it, it'll sharpen some of my skills. That uh, you know, as you said, when you get to a 50,000 point view, in some cases, you're a little bit more hands off. So for me personally, I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunity. Um, again, it, it does come with a little heavy heart because this is a wonderful, wonderful department. And, uh, and I love the, de- the Navy dearly, and it's, a, it's something that I will always look back on as a, a, an apex of my civilian career.
0: Very good. Well said. Rob Foster is the outgoing Department of Navy Chief Information Officer. Rob, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Jason, thank you so very much for reaching out to me, and I appreciate it.
0: We have to take a break. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Rob Foster, the outgoing Department of Navy Chief Information Officer. I know the Department of Navy released a mobile app locker just this past March. Talk a little bit about what that is and how that effort's going.
1: So that's been a great success. So the, the Navy app locker was developed and is managed by uh, PEoEIS, uh, the Program Management 240. It's a mobility team there and um, it, it essentially provides the same experience you'd find with both Apple and Google and the app stores. It's simple, it's a great layout, it's clean. We have 26 or so applications currently in there. Nineteen were developed by this organization, PMW 247 came from uh, other Navy parts of the organization. But the key ingredient here is it's in one location. It's got the same kind of form factors you will have if you are looking at Google and app. I've used it to put my uh, privacy application there, so so it's all in one place. And, and I, I will tell you, it's pretty interesting to watch. Young sailors come in with ideas, and then turn them into a product that they actually can see downloaded on their phone, and I think that's where we're going to start getting some bang for our buck as well. So anyone can submit a mobile app idea, and if anybody's interested and they want to look at it, it's uh, https backslash www A-P-P-L-O-C-K-E-R. That's applocker.navy.mil. And you can see the form factor and and see what it looks like. But but we're pushing hard on mobility. We're pushing hard on having sailors contribute to that mobility through their ideas and then turning those ideas into mobile apps because that's where everything's headed.
0: Now, we'll definitely link to that website on our uh, federalnewsradio.com as well to make it easy for people to to find. One question comes to mind rob is the fact that if i'm sailor young sailor or old sailor and deciding to do an app are there standards are are there rules that i have to follow or how are those apps checked to make sure that hey if i download them i'm not going to get malware even by accident on my device
1: The P-O-E-I-S, again, PMW-240, does have a process, standard development kit, I believe, that they they allow people to operate in. Nothing goes into production without going through their. their
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on FederalNewsRadio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, we hear an excerpt from a speech by Victor Gavin, the Navy's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Command Control Communications, Computers, Intelligence, Information Operations, and Space. He spoke at a recent ACT-IAC conference.
2: My speech is mostly for you. I I tend to talk about uh, where the Department of Navy is going, the types of things we need, and the types of things that uh, we need you to provide to us. Well, that's not going to be what you hear today. So so I kind of want to say that in advance. Because we we have a a, a different challenge in this forum. And I want to spend some time talking to the other folks in the room, the government folks, the government side that does acquisition. And I kind of want to focus my words and my my, uh, comments on us um, and and, and our relationships here. So so the bottom line to my my comments is this. We are at a very interesting time when it comes to technology advancement in this this world. Um, Technology and the underlying business processes that we procure that technology are changing at an exponential pace, at an exponential pace. They truly are. And our ability as acquisition professionals to keep up with that pace of change is absolutely critical if we are to provide these capabilities to our customers. In in my case, the sailors and Marines that defend this nation every day. It is absolutely critical and and key that we keep up and and put those tools and those capabilities in the hands of those sailors, Marines, and Air Force uh, folks that that provide and and keep this nation safe. And each of you and your your unique government uh, agencies have the exact same challenge. So so for the first time in my 30-something years as an acquisition professional, I see synergy uh, with a lot of the things we're trying to do in the in acquisition from Department of Defense with everyone else in the, in the government. And we all need to have the same challenges and the same solutions and, and there are common solutions out there for us all. And this challenge is driven by the pace of technology and those business models. So, so let, let's give you a couple of examples of that. So let, let's think about the automotive industry for a second. You read on the news within the next five years what Ford and Chrysler and GM are saying is we're going to have automated cars. We're going to have driverless vehicles out there. Uh, so, so let's take a minute to think about what that means to us. Uh, clearly, you know, there are going to be people like my mother or, or those that are never going to do this They say, hey, I'll never do this. I'll, I'll never trust the technology to do this. Um, but think beyond that. Let, let's think about what that means to the industry. Think about what that means to things like truck driving. Today, I was uh, with a friend of mine that works on the Census Bureau and he says that, hey, um, truck driving is one of the fastest growing industries in the country today. We're creating more truck drivers right now to haul things across this country. What does this technology do to that industry? How does this change the ecosystem of that industry? How does this change things like insurance? How does this change things like what mechanics do repairs? It is more than just a technology. It is a change, a fundamental change to that ecosystem. And those are the things we need to prepare ourselves for. Another example that is near and dear to my heart that I'm sure many of you have used um, is, is Uber. Uber, simple application, simple uh, application on how to, how to ride share across this country. But it was a disruptive technology. It changed the way we look at cab service today. And, and the way they went about that disruption, they didn't start by going to the taxi cab commission and asking, if they want this. The technology came and, and the, the universe adapted around it. And I contend that's where we are today. And and we as the government acquisition folks are part of of that adaptation. And our ability to adapt quicker, our ability to change our processes, change the way we conduct, uh, the way we acquire these systems, and more importantly, change the relationships we have with those providers is key to our adoption and adaption of of those capabilities. And that, that technology evolution is in, in, all, in all areas of our, of our uh, society today, from, from procurement, personal procurement, uh, malls. What's the last time we have been to a mall? A- Amazon has completely transformed how we buy things today. Energy, solar, it's completely changed how things are happening today. And, and last but certainly not least, what's, what's happening in IT? What's happening in our IT procurement uh, going from buying products to buying services changes the way we fundamentally have to think about uh, providing these capabilities. And I'm up to that challenge, and I, I, as I'm sure you all are, and that's why you are here, uh, to, to, to use these forums to share our evolution into these things. But the key to this is time. Time and speed to market. Our ability to adopt and adapt at, at the pace of industry, at the pace of technology is absolutely critical. Critical not just from a business standpoint, but critical from a, a cyber standpoint, critical from protection. It was coolly in the news last week or the last few weeks about the one virus. I am certain that the acquisition community was in the critical path in some of those cases to responding to that. The question to us is, how do we put together an acquisition system, how do we put together our processes that allow instant responses to, to threats, to, to changes at that pace? And it's those are the things that, that we have to deal with. To talk a little bit more about what this space means to us, it's not only a change of technology, it changes our role in this, in this space as well. A couple of stats for you. Back in the 60s, uh, 1960, the the Fortune 500 was made up of 15 defense companies, which made up 30% of the revenue uh, in those Fortune 500 companies. Today, fast forward to 2017, Fortune 500 companies, there are only four that work in defense. And of those four, they make up simply 3%, 3% of the revenue in those companies. So so our role, especially on the Department of Defense side, our role has fundamentally changed with the development of technology. The the business model has changed to where you, industry, is driving through your investments the development of, of of, of lots of our technologies today. And what we're doing is we're adapting and adopting those technologies. Now, from a defense standpoint, clearly there are some things that we don't, I don't expect that to be a reality. I, I don't expect Lockheed Martin or, or IBM or Verizon to develop the next Tomahawk missile. There, there, there's no, no business case for you to do that. However, the, a lot of the underlying technologies that make that possible are coming from you. And, and our ability to adapt and adopt those quickly is going to make the difference in the war and our ability to win uh, and then defeat the enemy. But it changes our role. We are so used to driving the market, we are so used to, to that 1960s model of making the R&D investment and having you respond only to our needs. The marketplace is driving us now and thus our role needs to change. So, so there are two fundamental truths about that, uh, that, that that need to happen as part of that. One is our speed to capability is essential, as I mentioned earlier. The WannaCry uh, example is a perfect example. And the other one is, is, element of, is also the element of time, the fact that time is money. There's a, a monetary value to not moving. There's a monetary value to to staying in old technology where you're paying more to maintain it. Uh, So so time, we we need to begin thinking more like business people when it comes to the the adoption and adoption of of these technologies as well. And and finally, these services, buying these things as a a service requires a very different relationship with industry. Again, if we are going to to rely on you, on industry, to advance these technologies, to, to move us forward in these areas, our relationship with you is different today what we do is we, on the military side, we buy these ships and we put sailors and marine and and airmen, marines and airmen on on these platforms and we fight the war. That's who fights the war. In the area of cyber, specifically, we all fight the war. All of us in one element or another are cyber warriors. All of us have a role in doing that. Uh, Cyber is a national problem, Cyber, cyber is a worldwide problem. It is not a military unique problem. And more importantly, the solutions that we all are using to fight that war are coming from industry. So, so I contend that a different relationship, a different partnership with, the, with you industry partners is something we need to pursue. Not the traditional acquisition partnership, buy a product and us use it. We need, we need to have you as part of that war, our war fighting cadre when it comes to that space. As I said earlier, I don't expect this to be an easier challenge, easy, easy move for us. Um, because, because let's be frank, none of us really like change. As, who would not start, as I said, by going to the Taxi Cab Commission and ask permission to write their application? The, the, the response to that clearly would have been a negative one. They started by going to the customer. They started specifically by going to people like me and you that, that said, hey, what do we want? Well, I simply want to get from point A to point B. Uh, all the other bureaucracy around doing that something I don't see, something I don't, I don't have a good feel for, but get me to point A to point B in a safe, the most efficient way possible. And the, and the application did that. I think we're asking the same of us today. How do we provide these tools? How do we provide those products in the most safe, efficient way, as well as protect the taxpayer's interest when it comes to this? So we need to reexamine ourselves. We need to reexamine our purpose and focus on delivery, delivery of capability, not process. At the end of the day, it's about the outcome of what we deliver, not the process by which we get there. So, as I said, ser- service is all about partnerships and creating those relationships. And what I don't expect us, this to be an easy road for us. Uh, I truly don't because it means change. Change to our existing processes and regulations that don't apply. Change means products that we've designed uh, in the past that are not longer used. We, we need to get rid of those. Change, frankly, has a lot to do with us having to do something different. There are a lot of us that are doing things today and as part of those processes that are going to find ourselves doing something different in the future. And we need to embrace that. We need to embrace that level of change. Because at the end of the day, the technology is going to move with or without us. And and we in our roles, it it serves us best to do our our part in making that advance of it. So, but at the end of the day, I don't want to leave you with a bleak story. In fact, I am encouraged. I truly am encouraged, frankly, by the fact that we're here. The fact that we have a, assembled here a group of ac- acquisition professionals across all elements of government that are eager, that enthused to, to embrace this change, that are, that are asking the questions, as I said in one of the plenary sessions, how do we do this? What should we do? So that is what I'm, I'm most hopeful for. And I welcome your continued engagement on here. Um, but at the end of the day, we must change. So so, so with that, I want to open up for questions, because I, didn't, I, I do want to debate this. I, I want folks to, to I want to hear your input, I want to hear your questions and comments against what you're seeing. The the Cloud Forum earlier today, there were lots of questions. There were lots of enthusiastic folks here, which which also gave me uh, made made me smile. (laughs) Hi,
0: Mr. Gavin, thank you for being here. I'm Anne Laurent. I have a question for you based on your comments about services and as a service. If industry is explicitly willing to accept the risk, is there anything Uh that the Navy or the Department of Defense now provides or does that could not be delivered as a service by industry?
2: Oh, th- absolutely, there, there, there are lots of things that can't be a service. I mean, weapons, they're, they're very, very they're, so from that standpoint, from the Department of Defense standpoint, there are lots, This is not a one-size-fits-all proposition here. Uh, There there, there are clearly some things that cannot be. Um, But but given my new title, my lengthy title here, (laughs) the C4I side of that, the IT space, uh, that clearly is the way industry is headed. Uh, And and I am very much trying to push on that end. But there will clearly be things like submarines in my previous life, planes, that uh, I fully expect, it will be only only, and maintain only a military uh, posture when it comes to operating.
0: That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I've been your host, Jason Miller. We just heard an excerpt from a speech by Victor Gavin, the Navy's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Command Control Communications Computers, Intelligence, Information Operations, and in Space. He spoke at a recent ACT-IAC conference. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes.